you'll open your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Mark chapter 5 as we continue our study there. You know, there are some events in life that seem to crush our soul to such an extent that it expels from us something of our life. It seems like after certain events and certain experiences, well, we're just not really ever the same again. Most of you know that just a few months ago, my, my brother passed away. It's my last living close relative on, on my side of the family. And as Jalen and I sat by his hospital bed the last several days of his life and they moved him into a private ward where they said that he'll die within a matter of hours and we sat there for probably 20-some hours. And they said, you'll know as he approaches death by the breathing. And so at about 3.30 in the morning... Jalen said, I think, I think the time has come. So we got up, we stood beside his bed, we held his hands. He struggled to take his last few breaths and, and then he died. We wrapped our arms around each other and stood beside his bed, we... we cried and then we prayed and then we left but I felt I left something behind I felt like that in those moments there had been such a crushing blow to my soul that when I left that room I left leaving a little piece of myself behind not Knowingly, not willingly, but resistantly. Nicholas Wolsterstoff wrote a book entitled Lament for a Son. He puts into words what every parent experiences when they go through the death of a child. As painful as it is, most of us know there's a 50-50 chance we may have to bury our spouse. There's a very likely possibility that we'll bury our parent. There's a good possibility we might have to bury a sibling. But as crushing as the blow was that night just a couple of months ago, I can't imagine what it would be like to have to bury a child. He writes in Lament for a a Son, Gone from the face of the earth. I wait for a group of students to cross the street and suddenly I think, he's not there. I go to a ball game and find myself singling out the 25-year-olds. None of them is he. In all the crowds and streets and rooms and churches and schools and libraries and gatherings of friends in our world, 
on all the mountains. I will not find him. Only his absence. Silence. Was there a letter from Eric today? When did Eric say he would call? Now only silence. Absence and silence. When we gather now, there's always someone missing. His absence as present as our presence. His silence as loud as our speech. Still five children, but one always gone. When we're all together, we're not all together. It's the neverness that is so painful. Never again to be here with us, never to sit with us at the table. Never to travel with us, never to laugh with us, never to cry with us, never to embrace us. Never to see his brothers and sister Mary. All the rest of our lives we must live without him. That's what a man by the name of Jairus must have felt like on the day that he threw himself at the feet of Jesus. This well-respected synagogue official, this man who, was the, who, ha, who had reached the pinnacle of respect in his community, now finds himself groveling at the feet of this itinerant rabbi, pleading, begging, imploring that he would accompany him to his home and heal his daughter before she died. In fact, the passage we're going to look at this morning is really two stories that are intertwined. It's something like a sandwich. There's a man and there's a woman. The man is the the name Jairus, as I've mentioned, goes by the name Jairus, and and his daughter is on the very precipice of eternity. Her, Her soul is slipping from her body. She's on the verge of death. Unless this one with a reputation for healing the sick can reach her before he, she dies. Then there's a woman, an, an unnamed woman. A woman that has spent every dime she has on physicians and now finds herself financially destitute and emotionally broken. The story begins in like a a three-part play. Jairus and Jesus. Then Jairus slips into the background. This unnamed woman and Jesus. Just as Jesus finishes up with her, Jairus comes back into the story. What we're going to see is Jesus didn't come and live in a sterile environment. He He didn't live in a pain-free setting. He didn't come and live in a, in, a, in a setting that was clean, where the sheets were crisp and the air was cool and the suffering was merely theoretical. He came to live in a world like we live in. He came to live in a world like we experience. 
He came to live in a world where people bury their children. He came to live in a world where there are uh, medical tests that come back positive. And they crush our souls. That's the kind of world that Jesus came to live in. He came to live in a world of desperation. He came to live in a world where, where people find themselves at times with nowhere else to turn but to him. And that's the very best place to turn. I want to talk with you this morning about desperation and faith. Jesus' authority over sickness and death. I want to direct your attention to two verses, and then we're going to work our way through the entire passage together. The first verse is in verse 34. In fact, I want you to circle the word faith. Notice Jesus says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in shalom, go in peace, and be healed of your affliction. Then I want you to look down in verse 36 with me. Jairus, his soul has just been crushed. Your daughter's dead, why bother the teacher anymore? And Jesus steps in to the darkest moment of that man's existence, and he says, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe. Circle the word faith in verse 34. Circle the word believe in verse 36. And look back with me in verse 21. The first thing I want you to notice is a father's desperate plea. A father's desperate plea. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him. And he stayed by the seashore. Now you remember that he had been on the other side of the Sea of Galilee in Gadara, Gentile territory, where he cast the legion of demons out of the Gadarean demoniac. They crossed back over the Sea of Galilee into Jewish territory and the crowd is enormous. In fact, it seems like they're growing by the day. He's finding it difficult to just Get a moment of time by himself with his disciples. He no sooner gets out of the boat than one of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up. And on seeing him, fell at his feet. Underline that phrase, fell at his feet. This is a highly respected man. A man that's reached the pinnacle of his community. Now he's not a rabbi, he's a layman, but he's over the synagogue. He is the one that would choose who would read the scriptures on the Sabbath day. He would choose who would give the homily on the Sabbath day. He was the man that everybody in the community looked up to. He was the man that every father would say, you want to be like him when you grow up. You want to be like Jairus. And now Jairus finds himself face down, smelling the stinky feet of an itinerant rabbi with dirt under his toenails. And he implored, he begged, he pleaded with him earnestly, my little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him, and a large crowd was following him and pressing on him. Mark is so descriptive. 
He's so descriptive that, that he, he falls at his feet, Jesus picks him up, and they're having to, to work their way through the crowd. Jesus is like a rock star. He, he, he's like a politician at the top of his game. Everybody wants to talk to him, to see him, to hear what he has to say. And then there's Jairus. Just begging that he pick the pace up just a little bit. Swirling around in his mind would have been something like Nicholas Volsterstoff wrote in Lament for a Son. Why are the photographs of him as a little boy so incredibly hard to look at? Something is over. Now instead of those shiny moments being things we can share together in delighted memories, I, the survivor, have to bear them alone. So it is with all the memories of him. They all lead into blackness. All I can do is remember him. I cannot experience him. Nothing new can ever happen between us. Surely that's what Jairus felt. And with every person in that community that saw the agony and the fear in that man's eyes, they came to realize heartache comes to everyone, regardless of their status in life. Rich or poor, black or white, American or Egyptian, Christian or Muslim. No one escapes the agony of living in a fallen world. Everyone experiences the crushing soul of death. He's a picture, a picture of desperation, of dependence, of urgency. And with each passing moment, his daughter is closer and closer to eternity. You know, the interesting thing about Jesus is he didn't see Jairus as an interruption on his agenda. Jesus had an appointment with the cross. But people didn't interrupt his agenda. They were his agenda. They didn't interrupt his sermon preparation or his book research or his backyard barbecue. Jesus came to serve people. People didn't interrupt him. People were his agenda. I want you to notice second of a woman's determined faith. A woman's determined faith. All of a sudden, in this three-part play, Jairus disappears into the background. But he disappears from our view, uh, but keep in the back of your mind all he can think about, all he can imagine, is the thought they're not going to make it. They're not going to make it. They're not going to make it. In 25 and 26, uh, he describes, Mark describes this woman. It says, a woman who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years 
Interestingly enough, at the end of the passage, we're going to discover that the little girl is 12 years old. What a stark contrast. On, at one end of the village, there's a family with a little girl. For 12 years, that little girl's been singing and dancing. For 12 years, they've been telling her stories. For 12 years, they've been, they, they have been teaching her the scriptures. For 12 years, they would play outside. For 12 years, they would pick, pick roses on the hillside. And yet, at the other end of the village was a woman who lived in absolute torment for 12 years. Her condition was such that she would have been ceremonially unclean. She would have been ritually impure. That is, she couldn't engage and interact with people on a normal, regular basis. She couldn't go into the synagogue to come into contact with her uh, would have rendered you unclean. And the Jews believed, many Jews believed, that your sickness was the result of your direct sin and you could draw a line from your sin to that particular sickness. And with a bleeding uterus, well, you can only imagine what they must have thought about her. The disciples, they fell into the same trap. You'll remember in John chapter 9 when we studied it, John describes how they came upon a blind man. He had been blind from birth, and the disciples said, Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Now, sometimes our... Illness is the direct result of personal sin. Most of the time it's the result of living in a fallen world. Jesus didn't fall prey to the disciples' mistaken theology. He said, neither this man nor his parents. It appears the same is probably true of this woman because uh, notice in verse 26, she had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all but rather had grown worse. She was physically sick, emotionally broken, financially destitute, ceremonially unclean. And yet she had faith. If you were to look at her, you would have thought That's a sad, sad life. But inside was a spark of faith. Look with me in 27 and 28. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and and touched his cloak. Uh, She must have maneuvered very, very quietly, as quietly as you can maneuver in a large crowd. Maybe she had her, her head covered, hoping that no one would recognize her. For she thought, if I just touch his garment, I will get well. She believed. She had faith. And notice in 29 through 32 how her faith was rewarded instantaneously, immediately. In fact, notice the word immediately in verse 29. Immediately the flow of her blood was dried up. She left and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately, Jesus, I mean, it's just happening just like this. She's sneaking in. She's touching his garment. She's healed. He says, who touched me? 
Who touched my garment? Verse 31, the disciples, they look around and they say, what's going on? Are you out of your mind? You see the crowd pressing in on you and you say, who touched me? There were many pressing in on him. There were many that were touching him, but there was only one that experienced his power. And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. That is, who's going to believe this woman who for 12 years has spent every dime that she has trying to be made well when she says, I'm now well? Nobody's going to believe it. Nobody's going to buy that. Jesus isn't going to leave her languishing in the lurch. Uh, So the woman, fearing and trembling of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him. You know, I think you underlined that back, back in verse 22. That's where desperate people go. Desperate people go to the dirty feet of a Galilean carpenter and there she falls she tells him the whole story daughter your faith has made you well go in peace she's healed and she's saved Her body is made whole and her sins are forgiven. That's the point he's wanting us to understand. She is freed from her suffering and she is free from her sin. Go in shalom. Go in peace. You know, the strange thing is that although hundreds were crowded around him, only one person experienced his power. You know, it's possible to remain untouched by Jesus, yet having been in the presence of Jesus. It's possible to come into a a worship service where the presence of Jesus is real and to bring in bitterness and resentment and hostility toward another person, uh, to bring in in sin that we're battling and struggling with or not battling and struggling with, and then to to leave unchanged, untouched, unaffected by the presence of Jesus. That's what happened that day. Many people touched him. Only one experienced his power. What was it about her that was different than all of the others? She was desperate and she believed. She had a desperation that only Jesus could help her, and she believed that Jesus could. Well, we've forgotten about Jairus. In the midst of all of that excitement, what's been going on with Jairus? Well, I want you to notice in 35 through 43, the raising of Jairus' daughter. In the very midst of all of this, Jairus hears the most painful words a parent can ever hear. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter, your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? It's hard for us to empathize with someone 
if we've never lost a child and they've just heard those words. We can hold them, we can hug them, we can cry with them, we can pray for them, we can serve them, but we can't enter into the depth of agony that they have experienced. No need to bother him anymore. She's dead. Period. End of story. It's over. Up to this point, Jesus hasn't resuscitated anybody from the dead. He hasn't brought anybody back from the dead. There's, there's nothing in Jesus' ministry at this point that would leave Jairus to believe in any, in any way at all that Jesus would resuscitate or resurrect his daughter. But notice what Jesus says. In fact, notice in verse 36, 39, and 41, Jesus speaks. He speaks three times in the remainder of the passage. Verse 36, verse 39, verse 41. First, he speaks, he speaks a word of encouragement to Jairus. He says, do not be afraid any longer, only believe. There's our term again. Only believe. He said something similar to this to the disciples. We saw it a couple of weeks ago. If you go back to verse 40 of chapter 4. After that, after that tumultuous storm on the Sea of Galilee. In verse 40 of chapter 4. Jesus said, why are you, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Either fear crushes faith or our faith will crush fear. Don't be afraid, just believe. He takes, with him, he takes with him Peter, James, and John, the inner circle. This is the first time these three guys are separated from the other disciples, Peter, James, and John. They go with home to the home of Jairus. When they arrive at Jairus' home, the, they're, they're almost, it's a very tumultuous scene, as you would imagine. This is probably a small village. This girl would have been known by everyone in the village, loved by everyone in the village. Jairus and his wife would have been the most popular people in the village. The home is filled with mourners. They're weeping, they're wailing. Jesus speaks a word of revelation in verse 39. Why make such a commotion and weep? She has not died but is asleep. I mean, she's not dead and gone forever. Now, her heart has quit beating. Her chest has quit rising and falling as she has ceased to breathe. The brain waves have stopped. And yet Jesus says, I'm not finished with her. He goes into the room, he takes only the little girl's parents and Peter, James, and John. Twelve years of memories must have flooded to their minds. A tsunami of emotions must have rushed over them. 
There must have been a, a wave of regret that began to choke the air from their being. And Mark records the very words Jesus said. It's an Aramaic expression. It's very interesting. We don't have very many Aramaic words in the New Testament, but Mark was so impressed by what he heard from Simon Peter. And as Simon Peter told the story to Mark, he used, those, he used the very words, Talitha kum, which translated means, little girl, I say to you, get up. And then here's our word again. Mark uses it 41 times. It's one of his favorite little terms. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk. And she was 12 years old. And immediately they were completely astonished. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And said that something should be given her to eat. He speaks a word of power. He speaks a word of power. Little one, get up. Little girl, arise. And her life returned her chest began to move. Her brain waves began, her brain began to function. Her heart began to pump. The impossible was done. So we look at this story and I want to suggest three, three truths that you, you might want to consider this morning. Three things that you might want to contemplate this afternoon. The first one is this, the importance of faith. It's highlighted twice in the passage. We see it back in verse 34. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe. You know, a part of faith is trusting in God's timing. Why did the woman have to wait 12 years in order to be healed? And why did Jairus' daughter actually have to die? Why couldn't he? He could have healed her from a distance. He didn't even have to be there. All he had to do was to think the thought, all right, be healed instantaneously. She, he didn't have to touch her. He didn't have to see her. He, he did it on other occasions. Healed people from a distance. But you see, true faith trusts in God's timing. And true faith arises out of a desperate soul. Desperation can be a very good thing if it takes us to the smelly feet of an itinerant rabbi from Nazareth. Number two, we see the power of Jesus. A couple of weeks ago, we saw his power over nature when he calmed the storm. Two weeks ago, we saw his power over demons as he cast the legion of demons out of the Gadarean demoniac. Today, we see his power over sickness and over death. But he's not just powerful, because powerful people can be cruel people. We also see he is a compassionate person. When you take power and compassion and put it together, you've got a savior to follow. You, you, you've got a savior to emulate, Sometimes we're compassionate, but we have no power. Sometimes we're powerful, but we have no compassion. But we see in Jesus the perfect blend, the perfect combination of power and compassion embodied in one Savior. The third thing I want us to consider is this. What do we do when he doesn't heal? 
What do we do when he doesn't heal? Jesus didn't heal everybody they came in contact with. In John chapter 5, he, he went to the pool of Bethesda. I mean, there were, there were what might have been hundreds of people gathered around that pool because it was thought to be a healing place. Jesus healed only one man as far as we know. What do we do when he doesn't heal? We trust him. And we believe that he has another plan for our lives and the lives of those we love. Well, what do we do about the regrets when he doesn't heal? Again, from lament for a son. And what of regrets? I shall live with them. I shall accept my regrets as part of my life. To be numbered among my self-inflicted wounds. But I will not endlessly gaze at them. I shall allow the memories to prod me into doing better with those still living. And I shall allow them to sharpen the vision and intensify the hope for that great day coming when we can all throw ourselves into each other's arms and say, I'm sorry. What do we do when he doesn't heal? We trust that he's got a better plan and a better way. And we wait for that day when we will be reunited with those we love who also love Jesus. And we will wrap our arms around one another in eternity and say, I've been waiting for this, for this very moment, longer than you could imagine. If you don't know Jesus, that day's not coming. If you don't know Jesus, you have no hope. If you don't know Jesus, you will die in a despair of utter darkness. And when you awaken in that next moment, it will not, only, it will not be better, it will be worse. We're going to have a time of commitment. It may be that you're here today and, and you just like to talk to someone about your spiritual life. We're going to have a, some staff members at the front. We're all going to join Barry as he leads us in song. We're not going to leave you languishing in some kind of embarrassing uh, no man's land here at the front. We'll, we'll take you out. We'll introduce you to someone. We'll talk with you about your spiritual life privately, confidentially, and see if we can help you and answer questions for you. If you're looking for a church home, you could come forward at this time. We'll, we'll walk you through the membership process and, and, uh, and point you in the, right, in the right direction as well. But for those of us that, uh, that do know Jesus, and for those of us that are members, maybe what you'll do as we sing, you'll just pause at some point along the way and, and say, Lord, I pray I would be desperate for you, and that I would trust you. Because you are powerful and you are compassionate. My circumstances are dark. My outlook seems bleak. But you're powerful and you're compassionate. And I will lay myself at your feet. Would you stand? I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer. The praise team's going to come. We'll all sing together in just a moment. Let's pray together. 
Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the simplicity of your word. It's so easy for us to read and understand, and, and the message, it has to be inspired. It's so powerful and true, and, and, it, and it points us in a direction of hope. And so we pray in Jesus' name in these final moments for your glory and for our good. We would believe what your word says in Jesus' name. Amen.